And welcome to the Virtual Real Estate Investing Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Frank Scapatici, doing a quick solo episode. Really, uh, today I'm just going to pour some thoughts out. I, uh, I had some really, really interesting and thought-provoking tweets that I read on Twitter that I want to talk about. And I'll also give an update on our business and how things are going along. Um, so today, as of recording this, it's April 5th, 2022. Q1 just ended. And it's been a really important quarter for our company, Grayline. We uh, we have abandoned, or I don't want to say the word abandoned, because um, we're still selling some single family houses that we've owned. Um, but we've turned off acquisitions for single family. We are not acquiring single family properties to flip or wholesale or to keep as rentals. We have moved our entire team over to self-storage, which is a big, big development. And um, to recap Q1, um, it was great. We had an awesome, amazing Q1. Both of our syndicated storage deals are doing really, really well. Our first deal that we closed on back in October, we bought it right around a six cap. It was a mismanaged asset, mom and pop. And rents or gross revenue per month was right around $12,000. And last month, um, we were at 17.7 or something like that. And we we told our investors we're going to stabilize around 19 we said that was going to take us about two years. So it's looking like it's possible. We're going to get there in maybe a quarter from now, maybe one more price increase that goes well and we're there. Um, so it's really, really exciting. So, you know, we, we looked at all the stuff and we're like, hey, we want to do more storage. So it's going really, really well. We wrote our quarterly update to our investors today. It felt good to write that. So I'm really, really happy with our business. Um, and, and we just locked up another deal. I'm flying down to Texas um, tomorrow morning to go do some on-site due diligence. But uh, I'm so excited about this deal that um, you know I got, I got to make sure I go in there with uh, and be objective. I don't want to have rose-colored glasses, but based on the price we got it at, I would have to find something significantly wrong, in my opinion, to not want to close on it. I'm really, really excited. Growing part of the country, good market, all that stuff. So really, really blessed, really happy. But what I want to talk about today, um, a couple of things I saw on Twitter today. I, I saw something Nick Huber posted I want to talk about, about um, what makes a good business. And uh, this guy, Elliot B, it's an anonymous account, I think. I don't um, know who it is who's actually posting the stuff or if his name's actually Elliot. But uh, he wrote something about spreads between spreads and cap rates between institutional grade assets and non-institutional grade assets. Um, so think on one end of the spectrum, on the institutional grade asset, you have a class A multifamily in LA or New York, you know, Austin, Texas now. Um, that's where money is gonna flow, right? Like that's, if money started, uh, if we started commercial real estate over tomorrow, where's money gonna hit first? It's gonna hit that, right? That's where it's gonna go. And then non-institutional, um, grade real estate. Let's go all the way down market. Let's talk like a Louisiana town of 1,000 people or less, and it's a Class C RV park or something, right? Like that's that's the other end of the spectrum. Real estate has a spectrum. One, the one on the left is the top multifamily. The one on the right is some type of storage asset that uh, is in a small town, okay, and maybe it's in bad shape. So that's that's the spectrum or the scale we're talking about. And right now. He called out something that's interesting, or maybe it's a she, I don't know. This person called out something interesting that the spreads and cap rates 
um, regarding the sales price is as tight as it's ever been. So maybe the um, institutional grade New York City multifamily is trading at a 3.5 cap or something, but the Louisiana Podunk RV boat storage place is trading at a six and a half cap or maybe a six. Some of these places are trading at like five and a half. It's crazy. Um, with interest rates moving, maybe that's changing, but in 2021, things were it was hard to find a six cap or below in anything on market. You have to do direct seller marketing. So anyway, so let's say the spread is three points between those vastly different assets in today's really, really, really tight environment, which is unique, right? In the past, those spreads were bigger. And this guy, B said, as rates go up and capital is less abundant, um, it's likely that those spreads increase, right? Like as capital starts to exit the market and we put stress in the economy, capital is going to go back up the waterfall, right? Like I'm imagining a waterfall and all the money, imagine you have a waterfall and water's flowing, right? At the top of the waterfall is class A multifamily. And because there's so much capital right now, the water's going right over that and it's going down and it's touching the crappiest real estate assets in the world, right? Like we're able to invest in almost anything because of the abundance of capital and the limited number of deals. But to this point is if that water dries up, it's going to stop somewhere in the middle of that value chain or less money is going to get all the way to the down market, right? So I, I agree with his assessment. I think the spreads will increase. Maybe that um, crappy Louisiana RV boat storage place I'm describing, maybe it starts trading at a, an eight cap, maybe a nine, right? Maybe we go back to 2010 levels and it's a 10, um, something like that. Who knows, right? We don't know the range, but we, I think we, we, I don't know if you can assume that this gentleman or her is correct, but I think there's a good chance that they're right, Okay. But what the one thing I've been thinking about after reading that is what are the things that are going to dictate how big that spread gets? What is going to affect that spread? And I think the two questions I'm going to ponder um, today, and I'm kind of thinking out loud, is liquidity in that asset class, right? I think about storage um, in particular, because that's what we're investing in. And I think about the story of storage in general. Lending has changed a lot in the last 10 to 15 years in storage. It used to be that it was harder to secure loans. Lenders were not as willing to lend on it. And that lack of liquidity put downward pressure on pricing, right? Now, lenders are like, hey, storage is a great asset. It's it's very secure. Maybe it's not as amazing to lend in as multifamily. Maybe it is, but it's it's good, right? You can find capital for debt or equity. So that abundance capital, the abundance of capitals compressed cap rates and made asset prices go up. So liquidity in the asset class, if interest rates go up, will that change? Like That's one question to ask. I think in the case of storage, I don't see that changing. Um, so I feel good about that. Two, operational burden or scalability. Um, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but my general thought is if it's a scalable business with low operational burden, there's less likelihood that capital will flow out of that asset class and cap rates will expand significantly. So um, like think about it this way. At, a institu- at the institutional level, you might have an asset management office. Let's say it's for a triple net um, triple net lease REIT or uh, lease back REIT. Uh, I have a buddy that works in one. They do dollar generals. So they buy, uh, they buy up dollar generals from owners and then they lease that place back to the owners. And then the owners pay the rent and they give them... Um, they get a return based off of that, right? That's uh, this is a very, very scalable, low op- low operational burden business. The asset management office in that type of business might be three to five employees, and they're mostly underwriting the tenants, 
collecting information and underwriting the tenants continuously to make sure that their uh, the risk in their portfolio is low, right? That's that's not a very hands-on or very, um, there's not a lot of stress on that asset management arm to be physically co-located with that asset. So it's very, very, very scalable, right? So I think like the triple net leaseback guys and gals are extremely scalable, right? So I think if, you're, if your liquidity is high in the asset class from a debt and equity perspective, and it's very, very scalable from an operations perspective, I think you're... I don't think the spreads will get that big in that asset class because you can you can grow it, right? So again, I, I go back to storage. I look at the presence of third-party management. And then I look at um, the ability to manage remotely, which Nick Huber for Bolt Storage and his partner, Dan, they're proving that model out. People are realizing if you can do digital marketing and set up remote systems, you can manage storage facilities from far away. And I think that... I think spreads will increase between non-institutional grade assets and institutional grade assets, but I think these two things mitigate the damage. Maybe I'm seeing rose-colored glasses um, on this one because I love storage, but that's how I look at it. I look at another asset class that we used to be in called single family and single family housing. You could have someone in an asset management office manage things remotely, but if you're fixing up houses, there just has to be someone doing rehabs on your homes. And that's a very, very, very high operational burden, which makes it hard to scale as we've seen with Open Door Zillow and other companies try it. So I think it's more likely that capital starts flowing away from single family than storage. That's a prediction that I have no way of being certain of and I have no insider information. But um, I just think about those two things and I'm like, man, that's where the spreads in my opinion can get the biggest, right? So that's a thought to ask yourself. If you're a real estate investor, and you're buying um, portfolios or you're buying commercial real estate and you're in buying in small tertiary markets, think about the spreads between that and an institutional grade asset and if they're appropriate and if your asset's at risk. It's a legitimate question or thought exercise to go through. So credit to EB for throwing that out there. I'm still thinking about it. Not really sure exactly what I think, but I thought it was really, really interesting. Another thing I saw on Twitter today that I wanted to talk about for this episode is what makes a good business. Um, Nick Huber had a tweet. I'll wait till the end to try to um, paraphrase it, I guess. But um, he talks about what what makes you be in a good business or what makes the business you're in good. And uh, based on our experience of being a single family, we've operated that business a couple of different ways. And now being in storage, I have some perspective here as well. And um, some of the stuff I'm about to say, the stuff that most people have probably heard before, but I want to just recap it. Okay. So what indicators are there that you're in a good business? One, I think appropriate, manageable, but appropriate barriers to entry and uh, pretext or context. This is for someone who wants to start their own business. Think small business owner, right? If you're uh, raising a billion dollars to start a new venture. This, this, um, these comments probably are not for you. This is for the average American real estate investor, small business owner. So appropriate barrier to entry. The first barrier to entry um, that I think is important is money. I think most good businesses should require some amount of money to start or purchase. Any business that requires no capital at all to get going is very, very easily disrupted. And you're just gonna be surrounded by hustlers. Think about real estate wholesaling or education. There's just so many people flooding 
those areas and they end up becoming your competition. And um, while it might not always feel like a race to the bottom in those businesses with pricing or whatever, it's just, I don't know, it just, it's tough, right? You just have so much competition and it's hard to build a moat, right? So having a business where money matters is important, right? If you're having to buy a small business, think about like a restaurant, right? You need financing for that. Um, for storage, for example, you need to buy, you know, facilities either through an SBA loan or a CMBS loan or some type of conventional financing. And there's some barrier to entry there because you need some cash, you need to be credit worthy, right? So you want some barrier to entry just to limit, eliminate some competition. Um, another good barrier to entry is having repeatable operations in your business. Any business that has repeatable operations and roles you can specifically hire for and train for, I think is good, right? Anyway, let's move forward. Um, do you have a monthly floor? I think about businesses like gyms where a lot of their revenue is recurring month to month through subscriptions. That's a good business. Having a monthly floor or a very, very predictable amount of revenue that comes in every month is a huge, huge advantage because it, it allows you to budget for improvements to your business. It allows you to budget for employees and it allows you to predict, you know, what expenses you can actually cover, right? And then when you have maybe an influx of capital, right? Maybe one month you crush it um, for whatever reason, um, then you could take some money home, right? And be confident that your your revenue floor that you get every month is going to cover your expenses the next month. It allows you to be more aggressive in paying yourself and paying your employees in terms of incentive comp, which I think is good for morale. And I think allows the owner to uh, have a more positive outlook on the company over time. Um, just because not having any type of floor and living month to month and not having any certainty over income creates a very, very stressful business owner, which is not good. Okay. So having a floor is good. Um, another question to ask yourself, do your employees need to be rock stars or brain surgeons to execute that business? Again, I go back to wholesaling. If you have someone in acquisitions or dispositions buying and selling houses, they need to be able to price houses, understand what they're worth, have sales skills, talking to sellers, closing deals, and they need to understand the transaction process that real estate goes through and some of the laws. Um, that's a lot. It's hard to hire for that. And because so many, every deal is a little bit different and things don't always go through a, a nice clean process. There's tons of unhappy path in that type of business. And um, it just requires your employees to be super, super flexible. And that's just a really, really high burden on your business because you need A players just to, to make a buck, right? Like you need A players just to make it work. And that to me indicates that it's a fragile business. You, you look at McDonald's or an ice cream shop um, and you look at the processes and the employees that can work in that type of business and you realize how much healthier it is, right? Someone shows up to work and they say, okay, my job is to be in the food line. I make the burgers, right? And they, you know, they get the bread, they throw the burger on there. They follow the same process over and over. Super, super scalable. Someone can show up to work every single day, execute their job, feel good about it, go home, show up the next day, get better, right? That is, that is the type of business that is easy to scale and it's less fragile, right? So um, question to ask yourself is, can rocks, do rock stars need to operate my business or can the average American or the average you know, outsourced employee from another country come in and thrive in my company. If the threshold is super, super high, I think that makes you pretty fragile. And it also, well, let's say you do find that A player in your business. If they leave, you're in trouble, right? 
Um, one, one analogy or one example I would use is a CPA business versus a bookkeeping business. CPAs can advise you on tax strategy, all this other stuff, right? They're, they're advisors. A bookkeeper is just a bookkeeper. They look at your expenses and your income and they categorize them and make sure it's up to date in QuickBooks or whatever tool you use. You could have a, a bookkeeping business with a software platform that does a lot of the work and you could hire a bunch of bookkeepers and you can grow that company, right? All those bookkeepers adhere to the same standards. They run everyone's books the same way and you could increase revenue by increasing your clients and then hiring bookkeepers as needed, right? You could do that. That works. That's That could be a business. A CPA business, on the other hand, um, if you're doing tax strategy or anything more advanced, it's highly reliant on the ability of that CPA or strategist, right? You can't, you can't multiply 10 of them because they have a specialty skill and they're a rock star potentially, right? So one is more scalable than the other. So you have to think about what type of business you want to run. I like to run a scalable business to get some time back in my life. And then the last thing, and this is what Nick Huber posed, which I thought was, um, it was a question I had never asked myself. So I thought it was a great question. It said, is time your friend in the business? And this might be a bonus because I don't think time is your friend in a ton of businesses. Any any company where you need to constantly be finding new clients or doing some type of revenue management to increase your top line, you know, time is not always your friend, right? There's some hustle required to make that business awesome. But um, he, he used this analogy or used this statement to apply to real estate. And in real estate, even if your revenue stays flat and your operations don't, maybe they're not improving, but they're, they're just staying steady. They're not improving or getting worse. Time actually is working in your favor. Real estate is friendly from a tax perspective and the land value of your assets. You know, you don't know what's going to happen next year, but you do know over a 10 year period, it's almost a guarantee that those values will go up. So time is your friend. So another question to ask yourself is, is time your friend in the business I want to get into? If all four of these questions are yes, I would say if two of them are yes, it's probably a good business. If three of them are yes, it's probably a great business. If all four of them are yes, it's an amazing business and it's probably real estate. Okay. So I'm obviously biased, but that's how I look at it. And again, the questions are, do you have appropriate barriers to entry? Do you have a monthly revenue floor that you can be confident in? Do your, can your employees be average people or just regular good people and they can thrive? Do they need to be rock stars? And is time your friend? I think you, that's a, those are great questions to ask if you're starting a small business or getting into real estate investing. And I want to give credit to uh, Nick uh, for posting that. That's all I had. Short episode and a little scatterbrained, but you know we're building in public out here. So whatever. I, I'll see you guys next week. I'm going to Texas to uh, look at this deal. Super, super excited. And I'll see you guys later. Thank you.